Whatever it is you want to do in life, you'll be able to do. It's always you versus you. That it doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, you can achieve anything that you set your mind to. Spend the rest of your natural life waking up and going after it. This is my purpose, and you will not stop me. You are listening to Mojo Sports. Hi there, Mojo Sports fans. It's Lainey Arrowsmith here from the In Focus Show. I am really, really delighted and quite excited to introduce and welcome our guest that we have on today. He's a proud Anawan Indigenous Australian, a highly respected elder from his hometown of Armadale. He's a former professional rugby league footballer and over his amateur and professional career, he's played for the Armadale Colts, Armadale Greens, Narwan Eels, won them uh, and with them won three uh, career knockouts. His professional career with the Sydney Roosters, um, started um, some time ago, but it hasn't stopped him um, in his career as he moved on to the Parramatta Eels, South Sydney Rabbitohs, and the and the Castleford Tigers. And he played for and coached the Redfern All Blacks. He coached the Indigenous Women's All Stars in their win over the Gillaroos in 2017. And in 2021, he was appointed head coach of the NRLW Parramatta Eels team. And he was renewed for another year in the role and for the club, which he calls his second home. He's an NRL Indigenous Pathways Manager and in partnership with the production team brought to the big screen the film documentary Erotica Rise Up, We All Rise Up Together, which explored the deep roots of rugby league within the Indigenous community and pride in a unified dance which connects Indigenous players to their culture. You've seen him on the NITV's Over the Black Dot and as a guest curator for SBS, The Road to the... For this for SBS and you've probably seen him on The Road to the KO. Please welcome Dean Withers uh, to the In Focus show. Hello. Hey, geez, that was a long introduction there. A lot of things, eh? A lot of fingers in pies there, but um, thanks for that. That was um, terrific. I feel like you've achieved quite a lot over your career and, you know, already perhaps two minutes in just the opening of this particular interview, we've spent it just in um, going through your um, introduction. But, I mean, you've had a great career. Welcome to the show. Um, I know in my introduction I touched a lot on your playing career and it was indeed very impressive. Um, your NRL and your Super League fans would be across your career, but your career knockout career is also something to behold. Um, I know your family's been playing in this huge tournament and I've become a fan of it. Um, the career knockout, which I think first took place in 1971 with seven teams. How many are playing now? So in the men's draw, you have over 70 teams. So wow. very, very competitive and Every team from every corner of this state of New South Wales wants to win that career knockout. You know, it's a, the prestige in our communities, amongst our tribes and our people and our mob is huge and everyone goes back to play. So you'll find players like Greg Inglis and Andrew Fafita and uh, all these guys that are playing international rugby league would still go back and play in the career knockout. And I don't think you'll see that too often in sport anywhere in the world where someone who's an international star of the game, of any game, but still has time to go back and play with their brothers and sisters and against family members and things like that who, who don't even play regular footy. So mm. crazy event, but one that we all are very passionate about. Yeah, well, after two years without the career knockout, um, I think mainly due to COVID, um, this year, the mob have a lot to look forward to. I think it's in Shoalhaven, is that right? Yes, down on the, down on the south coast. So now in Bombardieri, the location this year, and it's the first time ever that this career knockout has been held on the south coast on the 50th year. So it's actually the first time it's been held 
anywhere in the southern part of the state. So it's only been as far south as Dubbo right. all the time and then Sydney. So um, first time the southern part of the state gets to host it. Yeah, right. Um, the reason why I asked you about the career knockouts because I wanted if it was in your time at the Castle for Tigers where it's such a close-knit rugby league, loving community and family, that you were just reminded of how small-time country footy can mean so much uh, to, you know, that part of the world and also um, to the youth um, and realising some of those opportunities? Yeah, well, that was the thing that I loved about playing footy in England. I, I went there as a 16-year-old kid. I played in this Indigenous Australian team and I just always wanted to go back there. I, I really wanted to play back there in England at some stage and, at the end of my career, I was lucky enough to go back and spend some time at Castleford. And it reminded me of my hometown, Armadale. Even the weather, the weather was exactly the same because <laughs> it's cold in Armadale too. Um, but it just felt like bush footy where, you know, you're playing for the people in the town, your community. They, they get a boost out of your performance on the weekend. If you do well, they feel great. If... You're in a struggle, well, they, they stick by and they stay right by your side and work your way out of it. And that's why I started playing for boys, for the difference it can make to your community and how much people loved it. And I was one of them. I was someone who loved the game. And Castleford reminded me of all that. Yeah, yeah right. And um, and obviously a lot of memories of what um, rugby league can be to such communities. The youth look up to Indigenous rugby league um, stars and with such awe. I mean, they are role models of what they can be in those stars, like yourself. I've heard remark that Indigenous youth and country communities, rugby league is the bridge to opportunity. I imagine it's much like it is for uh, my Pacific Island cousins, harnessing those skills and enthusiasm and directing it towards a well-travelled and proven path to prosperity. Is that what it also means um, for you and for Mo? Yeah, look, I think the game was our first pathway or our first opportunity out of despair, I suppose, and out of broken communities. Um, and my dad talks fondly of you know, seeing men that had their children taken away and couldn't have the opportunities to work. They, they were never going to get given jobs. So they couldn't provide for their families. Their kids are getting taken away. They couldn't speak their language or practice their culture or they, or they didn't get taught their language and practice their culture. So they were broken. And the first way a lot of our communities came out of it was through rugby league. Yeah. Um, you know, my grandfather was a legendary rugby league player up in around the Werris Creek area, Moree and, and places like that in, in the 50s. But I think of how Aboriginal people were treated in the 50s the lack of opportunity in that. And he played in a team where every other member in the team was a white, white man. Yeah. And I just think it's it's remarkable to think that why did they give this black man a chance? Who was the person in that club that would have went through dramas with everyone else about we're putting him in a team, he's got to put this kid out or he's going to put this person out of their position? And, yeah. And then how does he get to the game? Because he wouldn't have had a job, he wouldn't have had a car. Um, and these towns are three, four hours' drive away from each other. So who took him to the games? How did he get to training? And how brave was he to go into a, a dressing shed full of people who were probably racist? And, yeah. Um, probably whispered and talked about him behind his back. And But there must have been someone in that room who was able to convince him, you know. I just think that's remarkable to think of these 
situations that were around back then and these brave people that that um, were able to stand up. And what they did was they enabled others like my father, like my grandfather enabled my father to be able to come in and be part of creating their own Indigenous team in a community where they were so successful they broke down racial stereotypes and barriers. And uh, Rugby League's always been that game and I, I just... I think that in those Aboriginal communities, traditionally that was the game was ahead of the rest of the society mm. and the rest of the nation around how it treated Aboriginal people. And it's always been that way. And now opportunities exist for you to, to use the game, playing the game as a, as, an, as a way to get out of whatever you're struggling with or to get ahead. But also the game also makes an effect and have, makes a difference on people in what they do in, away from playing the game as well. You know, we have our school-to-work program. Um, they just see inspiration and positivity, um, aspiration, all these positive words they see in rugby league. It doesn't mean you have to play, but rugby league has that way of improving Indigenous people's self-esteem in such a massive way. Yeah. And so I also note that in 2004 you were awarded the NRL's uh, Kim Stephen Medal for your positive work with youth and community, to which it was no surprise that you were appointed to the NRL Indigenous Pathways Manager later down the track in your life. First, um, would you explain what that role involves and how your involvement and work has unlocked opportunities for Indigenous players and also any non-players, as it's not always about having to put on some boots and a jersey to be part of the NRL or even part of rugby league? Uh, And second, what have been some of the achievements that are perhaps lesser known in the public um, that you're particularly proud of? Well, I suppose, like, the Ken Stevens medal is probably where what I do now is probably all initiated back then, um, and e- even maybe before then. Uh, I came into the game and my mum was a school teacher, so, uh, and she always said to me about education come first. You know, you've, you make sure you do your schoolwork before you to play, yeah. Um be a good student at school. She was at the school, so I couldn't. I couldn't muck up. I can. She found out everything, you know. My mum, so they usually um, do. <laughs> yeah, and, and so I, she made sure I was a good student that I that I applied myself at school and I did everything I can, and that stuck with me. And then when I played football, I saw early from an early age the difference that the game makes in the communities. My dad was the coach of the Narwhal Eels coach of the team, he was a massive character in rugby league in that area and still is. And I saw how he used the game to make a difference in people's lives. Yeah. Uh, better people make better players, you know, all that sort of stuff. So I've always had that two plan A's in my head yeah. um, as a rugby league player. And so I was always determined to try and make a difference off the field and, and to be doing things away from just playing, um, using my profile to try and make a difference. So... That's always been instilled in me, and then I win that award, and I suppose that recognises that, and it creates opportunities. Because when I think back to when the early days when I first started playing footy, there weren't many guys that were actually much in the community. Yeah, there wasn't many guys that that really cared about. It. They just full time footballers, play footy, have fun, train, and play golf, and uh, all those sort of things were the things that they all did. So that was the era that that came through, and then going to work at the NRL, it started in the well-being and education and a good mate of mine, Nigel Vangana, who's um, I was really close with uh, playing footy and 
was, you know, just he was the same as me. And and mainly back then, the only guys that cared about doing stuff in the communities were guys from either Pacifica or Aboriginal backgrounds who knew that our community struggled and they, our communities needed us. Yeah. So we'd go back and do community work where it didn't really bother any of the other guys. Yeah. Um, and then Nige was working at the NRL. He got me, um, as I came back from England, got in touch with me and wanted to create a role working with Indigenous players in the world being an education space. Mm-hmm. I came back and worked with Nigel and uh, Andrew Ryan, who were fantastic, you know, and we used to go around and do so much with players and retiring players, young players, all sorts of stuff. And I had a, I had a little focus, I suppose, on our Indigenous players at that time. And yeah. Did a few things there. And then I transitioned into the Pathways role, which is mainly looking at our kids from rural and remote areas and how we can give them access to that pathway because they, it's not an easy flow from uh, those communities into the elite pathway now. You've got to be in big cities. Yeah. Um, and the game's played at such a high level at those young ages that our kids in the bush don't have a chance really, I, yeah. I say. So I've got to look at creating ways and opportunities that we can bridge those gaps. Yeah. Um, and then we look at different things that exist in the Indigenous spaces like the Green Knockouts, the smaller knockouts that we do, the Murray Carnivals, and see how we can help those become more professional and um, run more smoothly, but also then how they can be a more positive pathway for our kids to come through there and be recognised for those systems. And over the years, particularly in the female space where I work, well, you've seen players come from the Torres Straits, uh, like Latoya Billy, and not played any competition rugby league in her life, not played any organised games or structured games, yeah. but play in that carnival and then six to eight weeks later be playing for Australia yeah. in the Gillaroos and score two tries on debut. So the talent is out there. Um, we just have a lot of barriers for Indigenous people to be able to have access to that elite pathway. And my role and then our role is to try and, knock down those barriers or create opportunities. Yeah, just breaking through that. And, and like, like as the popularity of the, like, the crew knockout, for instance, has, you know, grown, I wouldn't be surprised if this just becomes, like, the, I guess, the recruitment ground for a lot of um, NRL clubs, um, especially in the women's um, division, as it's starting to really gain popularity. And um, I think um, the fact that you um, hold a spotlight to that and um, you're that connection also within our uh, you know, I think they'll be looking with bigger eyes uh, towards that particular pool um, of talent coming through. Yeah, and, and look, part of my role is to convince people in the game and people in rugby league clubs, especially recruitment managers, to take what they perceive as risks on Indigenous players. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's... Yeah, and part of part of it is the, the growth of Pacifica players, especially in our Pathways program. So if you go down to all the elite competitions at 17, 16, 18 years of age, it is dominated by Pacifica players. They are bigger and stronger and more powerful than any of the other boys at that, that age. They grow uh, massively at that, that's at that age. And the size and the way they play the game at that age is... It's scary. Yeah. Our Indigenous kids seem to grow later yeah. and they seem a long way behind at that, that age. And the unfortunate thing is that if you're a, a little bit behind at that age, 
well, clubs don't have the time to invest in you to, to see you come through and wait yeah. for you to mature and take that risk on whether you'll come good or not. Yeah. So there is a real disadvantage for our Indigenous kids in, in the pathways as they exist at the moment. And then also a lot of our uh, big, strong country towns, like where I come from in Armidale, rugby league has died in those communities. There's, yeah. not, there's, there's no under-19s competition in the town where I live. So there's no juniors for a young 17, 18-year-old boy. There's no football for him. Yeah, right. So he's got no competition to play in. And then the reserve grade competition has, has died out as well. There's only seven teams in the competition when there could be up to 12 in that, in that area. Um, you've had some big towns like Gaura and Glen Ennis and Gaura were having a 100-year anniversary this year. They had to fold their club. So rugby league in those areas where there's a lot of Indigenous people in Moree, Tinga, Inverell, Armidale, out west, you know, in those towns, rugby league is as bad as it's ever been Yeah. Um, in those competitions. So young kids still living out there, they haven't really got a chance. They're yeah. never playing. So it really um, requires them to move to the big city in order to have those opportunities for them, yeah? Yeah. And... Moving to the city when you're a country kid isn't as easy as ABC. You know, there's a lot of issues that they face and um, a, a lot of uh, things that they can't overcome easily. So, you know, we and then clubs have got to take a risk on you as well to bring you down and give you time to adapt to the city, to adapt to the training. And not everyone does. So clubs see that as a risky business and they don't recruit Indigenous kids at the moment. So... Mm -hmm. A lot of our kids are missing out. Like, you know, if you saw a young Jonathan Thurston or a Preston Campbell coming through the system right now, um, they wouldn't be picked up by clubs. Clubs yeah. would look at them and say, too small, too risky, it's going to be too much of an investment, too long, we don't know if it will pay off in there, yeah. so we can't pick them, which for me is a travesty in the game. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like there's like a huge effort required to get that sort of development squad underway for um, Indigenous players, you know, for them to take a chance on. Yeah, and, and most of the time they pick these players on recognising some X factor or star ability. But if you're a little kid and you're just getting belted out of the game by the bigger kids, yeah. well, you're not going to have many opportunities to show that you have got something. And, you know, we got to see that in Thurston and Preston Campbell, that they had something that not anyone else had. But these days it's, it's a lot harder to find that and to see that. Mm, I really hope that improves over the next you know, a few years, especially in the game and for the community because, you know, we don't want them to be overlooked just because of that whole return on investment mm -hmm. uh, type of mentality that can sometimes uh, be the business that prevents um, success uh, in other areas. Yeah, and it does. It needs to change. And we need to grow our different pools of talent. And at the moment, the pool of talent that used to come from the bush has been dried up. Yeah. There's no players coming through. Well, yeah, I hope it does. It does change. Hopefully for the positive same. Um, we've had uh, NADOC week just flash, and I imagine it's been an eventful week for you. Um, as you, I observe that you were everywhere <laughs> most of the time. You're very busy, even in just trying to tee up our our get together today. Um, I, you know, we've both had clashing schedules, but you in particular have been quite busy. Now, I know in my research about you, I've heard how much. NADOC means to you um, in the Indigenous community. But ask, I'll ask you for our listeners, what has this year's NADOC um, especially meant for you? I think it, look, every year it's a celebration of Indigenous culture 
And I think there's a lot. I love it because it's so much positivity in the week and people are willing to share and educate. Our people are willing to pass on knowledge, to showcase culture and to invite people in. And that's one of the best parts of it that I like. You know, I've got an opportunity to present to inner systems in the city, which is a, a massive um, tech medical company oh, yes. that the deal with all sorts of medical software and computer systems and health systems all around the world. To go and talk to some of their staff who've never met an Indigenous person in, in their wow. life um, was, was, was a real honour. And to teach them about culture and to, to teach them about connection to country and place and, and what, surround, what surrounds them and, and how the land and the environment shapes you and moulds you and, and, and heals you was really important to me um, so that they recognise the genius in our culture or the, the smarts that existed for our, in our people for hundreds of thousands of years because unfortunately in this country, our traditional culture, I feel, is always talked down or always looked at as, and it's because that was described negatively from day dot in this yeah. country. Uh, they, uh, the words like um, that we just wandered around this land and we're wanderers and nomads and things like that was, were just totally wrong. We were seasonal migrators. If you watch any animals in the world, yeah. they don't stay in the one place. They migrate around according to seasons and, and that way they preserve the, 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 the land, the environment, but also survive. survive. Yeah. And that's one of the most ingenious things that our people did. Um, the, the, the kinship system our people had, a genetical, the, the ability to avoid genetic disease. Mm. It's ingenious, and uh, you have had you know David Attenborough and some of the smartest people that work with environments and traditional peoples and stuff that say some amazing things about our culture. Um, looking at astrology and the way our people use the stars and uh, the way our people moved around, like there's some amazing things about our culture. The connection with animals, like I just I I shake my head because. I see people that can tame a lion or tame a crocodile or tame whatever animal over a five or six-year relationship, bears, you know, working with bears on movie sets because they've built those relationships over a five or six-year period from a young age. Yeah. Imagine what hundreds of thousands of years of building relationships with animals would create. So when we talk these dream time stories, which people talk about as some airy-fairy sort of imaginable thing, yeah. um, I just think it would have been amazing to sit there and watch dolphins and whales round up fish and bring it to the people because it would have happened because the relationships that all Aboriginal people have are reciprocal and go in circles and I always hear the talk about how they gave the heads back to the whales for what they did for helping round the fish up for them and bring them up to the mouth of the river. Like, And then there's other stories around mimicking animals and watching animals and the close connection that people were animals to start with. Yeah. Like I think some of this stuff would have been amazing to see when the first settlers arrived, but they didn't take the time to learn. Mm. And I think they would have just seen well, the way that these people work with the environment, work with the earth, they mimic the animals, they watch their behaviours because the animals are the great survivors of the land everywhere we go. That's right. Uh, they they sense the vibrations of the earth long time before we do, so we must take notice of them. And 
Um, our people did that, and I just feel that that's not celebrated, but NAIDOC Week gives us that opportunity to shine a light on some of these things and, and to have more positivity about Aboriginal culture in this country because for too long, the only thing you'd hear about Aboriginal people was all negative, about what's wrong with it, coming from deficits all the time. What's wrong in their communities? What are they doing wrong? You know, all the, all the injustices, all the, the wrongs, all the trauma that's been for our community, it just gets replayed over and over and over again. Yeah. But NAIDOC Week, I believe, is more about the positivity and that's why I love it so much. Yeah. No, and, like, great points. Uh, you're right. I mean, there does seem to be this um, continual uh, negative loop. Yeah. Well, it was funny because I had the conversation when I, when I went to make the film and they talked about, you know, some of the best Indigenous documentaries and there's a list, there's a long list of great Indigenous documentaries, but they're all about injustices. Yeah. It's about, you know, some some person who's had kids taken away or had to overcome some terrible injustices in the crime system or the deficits of alcohol and drugs and what that's done in communities and our people. There's always told from a deficit. And I look at my upbringing and my life and myself as an Aboriginal man and I feel I was blessed. I feel I have an advantage on everyone else. Um, but not allowed people get to have that freedom to, to feel that they're worthy and that they're good and that they can, they're going to achieve amazing things. It feels like you're always told about the fight and the struggle and that what you're going to have to overcome. And then when you're overcome, that, that's, that's your narrative of your story. Yeah. Is, oh, he's great because he overcame this and that. No, I'm great because my people have always been great. Just that they were never recognised as great in this country. Yeah, you're kind of the megaphone um, to the um, achievements and the greatness of um, Indigenous, um, you know, communities and people. And, um, I just think, like, for our people to survive what they've survived in this country, credit and then, credit to, is due. then to come out <laughs> and on top of that and achieve amazing things, which our people continue to do every every day, every year. I think, wow. You know, we're, we're, we're pretty special. And I love that about a lot of the Indigenous cultures in the world and, and at the All-Stars, you know, playing against the Maori team and listen to their cultural advisor talk about the way that they believe that they are a cut above the rest. Yeah. And they believe that their culture is the best of the best. And people thought, looked at me and thought, oh, he must be intimidated by that or you're angry about that. I thought... I loved that when I heard that. Yeah. And I'd speak to, you know, Dave Solomona and Nigel Vangana, two of my closest friends, <laughs> and how proud they are of Samoan culture. Yes. The Tongan boys, how proud they are of being Tongan. You know, they they only wear red. They don't wear no other colour, you know. That's and, right. and when I hear them talk about it, I love it. I admire that. And I, I feel that we all, it's like a parent talking about their kids or yes. a, a, someone talking about their mum. Just because I've got the best mum in the world doesn't mean that you can't either. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and, and I'm so proud of my mum and my dad that I've got the best family that I'd ever want in the world. And it's the same with my culture. My culture is mine. It's special to me. And I believe it's the best in the world. And I love it that other cool people believe that as well because we share that similarity together then yes. and that connection. So um, I, really, I, I really believe in all the positives of our people because for too long, Indigenous peoples across the world always get played down. Yes. We always get told that we were doing things wrong and 
and stuff like that. Our trauma and our negativity, there's the, our, our our ability to overcome that is our strength. Uh, I think that there's so much more to us that we should be proud of. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I completely agree. Um, and thank you. I wanted to um, also ask you about something. And even though it's 2022, um, there are still some, you know, old experience and lessons that can become the catalyst for the uh, or actions that we take in life. Um, I refer you to the Fletcher incident in 2005, which is during a special Indigenous round for the NRL. And as an Indigenous man on the receiving end of racist comments, I, I mean, I, I guess I could safely say, I look back at that footage and I, I went back and watched and I saw the look on your face and how it affected you throughout the game. Now, I know I've been on the end of some, you know, unwelcome you know, commentary as well, um, very direct statements, and it leaves you immediately stunned um, because you just don't know how to respond and you, and you sort of look back and play over the incident so many times and think, oh, I should have responded that way. But, you know, with enough time, I know I take away from it the importance to educate and inform because I didn't want anyone to feel that feeling um, or that shame that I did at the time. Was that a catalyst moment for you as you're so devoted to promoting pride of your culture and education, um, you know, of, and, and also education of non-Indigenous to understand um, the importance and contribution and place in society? Mm. I, look, to just to, to, to go through it, I, the shock of that, what happened at that time, I just could not believe the words I heard, and especially coming from Brian Fletcher, who, I probably wouldn't have played first grade at the Roosters if it wasn't for Brian Fletcher. You know, he, he was that player that, God, I loved the way he played footy. I loved the way he was a bloke at the club. He treated everyone really good. And I'd never, ever heard any of that sort of stuff from him in all the time that I played alongside him at the Roosters or that I was trained alongside him. Yeah. And then, uh, and, and I, I got on really well with him. And, you know, I believe that he was one of the players that encouraged me to play first grade at the Roosters. I, I believe. You know, he without Brad Fittler there, I would not have played first grade. Brad yeah. Fittler was the one who pushed for me to be selected in the first grade team. But um, also, Brian Fletcher was a big part of that team as well. So you would have had to have him supported as well. And, and I felt that he really did support me at that time. So to hear that from him was shocked the hell out of me. But also, like you said, my reaction and how I felt, I just didn't, I, I couldn't, my Sorry. emotions, I could not control anything. I was stunned, shocked, belittled. I felt small. I felt, angry uh, I felt upset I was fighting back the tears on the field you know I, I I was not scared of anyone on a rugby league field my whole life I would t love every challenge that was on there and sometimes the rougher the tougher it was the better I, I liked it but um to, that, moment. that moment nearly brought me to tears and I just felt so small I just didn't know where to go if there was a hole I would have run and hidden yeah. I, I felt that um and then I also felt angry that I wanted to you know, to to go, but it was just such a roller coaster. All within twenty seconds, like you yeah. cannot believe that this could all happen to you in a twenty seconds to one minute. And if it wasn't for, um, I remember Nathan Kalis was my captain of the team at the moment, and as we were sort of getting ready to get back into the game, and he was right next to me, and he said some words to me that just picked me up and made yeah. me feel good and. You know, he's like, I've got you, I've got you back. I'm gonna watch. I'll make you pay for that. Like it was just sort of like, and it was coming just, in for your defense. Come in and just and virtually, he must have seen that I was shaky and that I was 
ready to crumble, but he just come to me and said, I've got you. I'll look after you like like that. And to get that from him really just picked me up. And another guy, Aaron Kevings, was next to me as well at the time. And he was another one who really just picked me up. And um, and then I look back at the incident and the way that it was dealt with. And I could have been angry about it. I could have, you know, fought fire with fire and, and, and went crazy and, and tried to be violent in the game or try and hurt him in some way or even fight back with words and all that sort of stuff. But I feel that when I when I got composed, I was, it was more around this is going to be treated with sensitivity, with care, with love in even some ways, and educate people because if I just get angry, well, people are going to always stay angry. And the people who have those racist connotations or what thoughts in their heads, well, I'm not teaching them anything. They'll probably even use it even more. Yeah. So my thing was around, well, you know, We've got to educate. We've got to show people that it does affect people and there are better ways to, to get on better and stuff. And I feel that we've really achieved that in rugby league because you just couldn't imagine this right now. Like, no. You know, the NATO, also, the Indigenous round was just on. So, that, like you said, this was at the Indigenous game. They used, yeah. It was the only game they'd have in NATO week where they'd have one game where it was all about the Indigenous achievements. Yeah, Kathy Freeman and... Linda Birdie and all these people were in the crowd watching that day and for something, could you imagine if something like that happened in Indigenous round now? <laughs> like that would just, that would it be, would not be worth it. It would be unbelievable. But um, I just feel that that's a good thing in the game that we've achieved is by treating these issues that way, we're slowly starting to get them out. Now, do they still exist in country 40 and other levels of rugby league? Yeah, I hear too much of it these days. It just, you know, it still affects people in a bad way and, it's um, yeah, one of the toughest things for our people to deal with out there is, is that racism. And racism's in a lot of different ways these days. It's mm. not directly in your face. There's unconscious bias. There's discrimination. And there's the what you don't hear are the, the things that worry you a lot these days. So. Yeah, it's just sometimes the subtle racism. Um, yeah, that you, you and I think sometimes you, you see it, you hear it, and you're like. I don't know if you've got the energy today, today to deal with it sometimes. Oh, and social media, what some of the guys deal with on social media from keyboard warriors out there is um, is disgusting. And um, and that really, and it does, it, it can demoralise people. And that's that's how I felt when it happened to me. It demoralised me. And I hate to think that my kids have to go through that. Well, I'm hoping that your children um, don't encounter that um, especially you know as they move through life and anyone else's children as well you know again it's 2022 we should really be past next time on the in focus show we keep the questions rolling and bring to you part two of our interview i really love coaching in the women's game um i see as the game grows more the female game to a full competition um you'll you'll need to either decide to focus fully on your coaching or continue to do some of the other stuff that I do, which is really important. Yeah. Um, so I'll have to make a decision about that at the time or someone else will make that decision. <laughs> you have been listening to Mojo Sports. Thank you for your support. It is very much appreciated. The team and I are trying to build something a little different here, so everyone's support is very much appreciated. 
Continue to support the podcast, download, subscribe, check out our social media channels, give us a follow, and be sure to tell your friends about Australia's best-kept secret. This is Mojo Sports.